This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I bet I'm not the only one who's had this experience. Have you had something like a movie everyone is talking about? Everyone loves this movie or this book. Everyone's reading it. Everyone loves it. So you're not normally one to go after something because everyone's doing it. I've got to read this. And you do, or I've got to see this movie, and you see it. And you liked it, but you don't get it. Why are they so enthusiastic? They love this thing. I don't get it. I must be missing something. These are people I know. I trust their judgment. They're normally right about movie or her books, but this time I don't get it. Well, you might have a little bit of that experience this morning because in our series on Acts of the Apostles, a great deal is made of the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We'll talk about why that's the case, but this is really a story that gets all sorts of spotlights. And you might say, and what am I missing here? Why would this be so important? What's the big deal? So our questions today looking at the Scripture is, how is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, how does that really stand out? Okay. Secondly, what's the good news that we find? Every story has good news. What exactly is the good news of the story, that story? And finally, you know, we don't have, uh, this, we're not, we don't have any first, many first-century eunuchs here, I'm sure. So what's the good news for people who aren't first-century eunuchs? Is there some special good news for all the rest of us? Okay. Now, let's talk about how does the story of Philip and the Ethiopian stand out? Well, in the story of Acts of the Apostles, we've already seen, I'm going to, this is a basically, um, it's going to be a spoiler alert, but we're going to see a lot more conversions. We have conversions everywhere. Conversions in Acts of the Apostles are as common as being put on hold when you call a government office, or like switch, switch delays on a metro train. There is nothing special, okay, about converting to the Lord. Everyone's converting to the Lord in Acts of the Apostles. So, for example, the very first day, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people come to the Lord, are converted, and are baptized. 3,000 people. And if that's not enough, the apostles keep preaching daily in the temple. And we're told that another 2,000 are added to their number. We're already at 5,000 people early in the book of Acts. Philip, the same Philip we run in today, Philip went down to Samaria and started preaching the gospel, and they said great crowds followed him everywhere. And they converted massively. They converted en masse to the faith. And they, uh, so we had their, they had converted en masse to the faith. And then we have in Paul, we have his three missionary journeys in Acts of the Apostles. And again and again, everywhere he goes, he goes to the synagogue, he preaches the good news to God's chosen people, he preaches to the devout people, to Gentiles, and everybody is coming. You know, every place we have people, the word is being planted. So conversions are not an unusual thing in Acts of the Apostles. So we have to ask ourselves here, there are three situations, three particular conversions in Acts of the Apostles that really are different. They really stand out in a world filled with conversions. And what's going to be different here is we're going to have three situations where God reaches out mightily, really gets personally involved with a particular human being. See, on the day of Pentecost, people just happened to be there, everyone who heard the news, right? It wasn't directed any one particular person. Thousands of people are listening. But we have three situations where 
There aren't thousands of people to listening. The gospel comes to one single person. It doesn't come by accident. They just happen to be there. You know, God arranges everything to bring the gospel to one person. There are three instances in Acts. Two of them, even though we haven't got that far in our series, we were familiar with. Remember Saul, you know, the great persecutor of the church, who becomes Paul the apostle. God spares no trouble to convert him. He meets him on the Damascus. Jesus in person meets him on the Damascus road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He actually talks to Ananias in, in Damascus and persuades him he needs to go and baptize Paul. And again, it wasn't like Jesus was doing conversions on the Damascus road that day and Paul happened to be one of the people coming by. He came for Paul, individually for Paul. Wow. And what about Cornelius? Cornelius was a Roman centurion. But you know, there are other Roman centurions. But the thing about Cornelius is one day he's praying and God speaks to him. He gives him a vision. He says to him, you know, your prayers have been answered. Your almsgiving, I've heard you. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to go meet this, 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 this Simon. You're going to meet him. He's going to bring you a word of life. And meanwhile, Simon Peter himself has this incredible vision. God speaks to him and says, look, I'm sending you this guy. I want you to meet him and, you know, bring this word of life. And if that's not enough, we then have, when the time comes, people say, well, gee, can we baptize them because they're not Jewish and they're not circumcised? And so what happens, the Holy Spirit gets involved and has a dramatic, you know, a dramatic miracle to allow Cornelius to be baptized. Wow, that's a lot of effort for Cornelius. But today, you know, those two don't have anything on uh, we're talking about the, uh, the uh, Philips and the Ethiopian eunuch. Look at what happens here about God getting involved. You know, he goes a lot of trouble individually. The angel of the Lord actually gets Philip to go on this road. Philip wasn't traveling and run across and, hey, you know, I need to evangelize. He says, go on this road, and this isn't a common road. The road he's taking to Gaza, if you're unaware of this, Gaza is the last watering spot on the road to Egypt. That's where you really could take in water. It's the last big freshwater watering spot. So people going down to Egypt are going on this road. It's a desert road, but you go there, that's where you take in the water, and then you move down. He comes from lower Egypt. Ethiopia is not our Ethiopia. The Ethiopia of the New Testament is what we call Nubia. It's the land of the south of Egypt and the north of Sudan, the Nubia. They, they used to call it Ethiopia. The, the Greeks called our Ethiopia Abyssinia. Okay. So he's, go, he's going on a long trip. He's going on a long, long trip. And so the angel of the Lord puts him on this route he would never take. And then if that's not enough, the Holy Spirit says to Philip, he's on this, why am I on this road? I'm not going to Egypt. Why am I on this road? So suddenly he tells him, you see that chariot up there? You run and catch up. It's not like, well, maybe I could catch a ride. <laughs> maybe we could chat. No, he says, you run and catch up to him. He runs and catches up. Okay. Then we have, this is a desert. So when he decides to respond to the Lord, what do we find? You'll never guess. Water. Enough to get down in and dunk. I mean, they tell you, he went down into the water, not a little stream. You know, they got enough to go. He found a watering hole in the desert. That's good. And then we're not done. You know, Philip, probably late to work, I don't know, but in any event, God snatches him up to get him to his next appointment. So basically, God has done a lot of stuff to come to the, for the Ethiopian eunuch. 
So we have three stories, but this story stands apart from the other two, not just because it's the first we have. What's really different about this story? Well, Saul's conversion, we can understand why God went to all this trouble because Saul's really going to be an important player, the Apostle Paul. You know, over half of Acts, really Acts of the Apostles is two books. It's the Acts of Peter and the Acts of Paul. And over half the book will be devoted to Paul. So he's one of our star players. This is his entry. We can understand how we have a dramatic thing with Paul. He'll be one of the two greatest apostles. So we can understand a lot of fuss over Paul. And Cornelius, he's going to be the great change. The hope of the nations had been that the good news of God to his chosen people would extend to all the world. It's the promise to Abraham. Cornelius was the one. He would be the one who as a Gentile would come and come with full equality you know, with God's chosen people, full equality for Jew and Gentile. That's a big deal. But let's, let's figure out how much do we know about what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch after the story? Well, that's pretty much it. Yes, you got them all. Uh, we don't even know the guy's name. We never hear of him or from him again. So why in the world is he the very first person? Because there's nothing later in his story that makes him interesting. So what is there that he's the very first of these three conversions? That must have this. that God would go to all this trouble for that one man. Well, let's look at what do we actually know about him? Maybe if we looked at what we knew about him, that could help tell us why. One thing we know is the guy was powerful. He actually worked for the Candace. Actually, the, this is the mistranslation what you have there, is the Candace is the word for the queen of Ethiopia, and they're just sort of explaining, oh, the queen, you know, the Candace, she, he's the, you know, Candace is the queen of Ethiopia. He's an official, but I'm a CPA, and I've got to tell you, if you know, I don't know where power is, follow the money. This guy's not just an official, he's in the finance department. The guy has clout. Okay, so the guy has clout. He's in the finance department of government. He's a high official. The next thing he has, he was rich. How do we know that? He's in a chariot. Okay, this is not typical. Most people do that. It's like, like saying, you know, on his way in his Lamborghini one day. You know, this is not, in the ancient world, you say, why does he have a chariot? That's not typical. Okay. The next thing is he was very cultivated. In a world where most people did not read and write, he not only was literate, he knew foreign languages. Uh, he knew either Hebrew or Greek. He could have had the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures, or he could have had the, the actual original Hebrew. But either way, this is impressive. And if it's the Hebrew, it's even more impressive because the Hebrew here was a dead language. The Hebrew, and the, when they call something Hebrew in the New Testament, they mean Aramaic. Hebrew itself was like Latin to Italian. It was a dead language that you used in, used in synagogue. So what happened? So he was very cultivated. This guy had an education. Okay, so let's figure out. He's powerful, rich, cultivated. Another thing, he is converted to Judaism. There are arguments about this, but I think it's overwhelming he's a convert. Why? When he's baptized, there's no hesitation baptizing him. None. It's not even an issue, even though otherwise it's always been an issue. You know, if gee, you can't, you have to be a Jew first. You know, you have to be circumcised. So the question is, he's a converted Jew. Matter of fact, another reason is he's coming back from a pilgrimage. This guy went all the way from southern Egypt, all the way to Jerusalem, for a pilgrimage and is coming home. This guy's a Jew, okay, so he's a converted Jew. So we know he's a convert to Judaism. With all those things, I don't see anything there that would single him out. We could find other people who meet all those criteria. So maybe the key is this. 
We don't call this the story of Philip and the government official, do we? Do any of your Bibles call this the story of, of, of Philip and the rich guy? No. How about Philip and the scholar? Nope. How about Philip and the Ethiopian Jew? You see where I'm going with this. Is there something else we know about him? He's a eunuch. That's the key thing. Everything else is incidental. He's a eunuch. Okay. Now, that's the ten-ton elephant in the room here. He's a eunuch. Now, what does that mean? A eunuch meant he, was, he underwent a surgery, in almost all cases involuntary when he was a kid, that made it he could never be a husband or a father. Ever. This was eliminated from his life. Okay, so this is the situation he's in. And we might say, well, gee, that's really tragic as it is uh, to not be able to ever, you know, have a, have a family at all. That's a real tragedy. Have somebody do that to you. But there's more to it than that in the ancient world. We think of that in terms of our emotional life. That would really be tough emotionally. It was much more practical in the ancient world. The first thing in the ancient world is there is no social safety net. Families are essential. They're the ones who will take care of you because if things go wrong, there's no one else or you just go and beg and hope someone will do something for you. So families were welcome. Children were not a burden. They were a blessing, as they still are, by the way. But they were financially a blessing. The second thing about them is this. In the ancient world, if you were a man, your main principal duty, more than anything else, was to continue to the next generation, to maintain the continuity of the generations, to make sure the family went on, that your family, your name, went on. That was your chief job, is to make sure what you received went on to another generation. That was a success. Nothing else would make up for that. Okay, so they call that like preserving your name. Now, this is so important that in the law of Moses, it says that if your brother dies, and he's married but he hasn't had any kids, you, you are supposed to marry his widow, and then your first child becomes his child, so his name won't disappear. That's a mosaic law. It's in Deuteronomy 25. That's a mosaic law. If, you're, if your brother died under the code of Moses, what you had to do is you had to marry his wife, and, and the first of your children together now, the first of those children wouldn't be your son. It'd be your dead, your dead brother's son. It was that important. And another example is look at Abraham, the father of faith. To show you how desperate it seemed for a man who couldn't have keep the name going is think of this. God says to David, Abraham, excuse me, or Abram. He says, fear not, Abram. He has this vision. He says, fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. God has just said, I'm your shield. Your reward's going to be great. Does Abraham say, good deal. This is fabulous. He complains. What does he say? He says, Lord God, what will you give me if I continue childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. So God says, I'm going to give you rewards. He says, there's nothing you could give me. Without, without continuing my line, there's nothing you could give me that's worth anything. This is Abram speaking. So you can see it was a really big deal to be a eunuch. Now, the, here's what's important is a eunuch was emblematic. When people wanted to choose somebody as the quintessence, as the poster child for a life without, that's not going anywhere, a life without hope, a meaningless life. In ancient literature, it was a eunuch. It was a life that was a, was a shadow of a life. It didn't really have meaning. It wasn't going anywhere. It was a dead end. 
And so, matter of fact, in the Old Testament, they call eunuchs are described as dry trees. You know, the idea is, and remember in the parables with Jesus, what do you do with a dry tree? Well, you have to cut it down and, you know, and use it for firewood and put in a new tree. We can't waste the ground. Okay, so that was the idea of what you would do. So the eunuch is a symbol of every, basically generally of any life that in human terms could never be a success. You know, a life that's a dead end, a life that's not going anywhere. A life that when I'm done, it wouldn't have made any difference if I hadn't been there. I'm not saying this is true, but if in human perceptions, that would be the idea. His name would come to an end. By the way, it's sort of ironic that probably the reason he had this job, I can't help this as a footnote of being a CPA, why was he the finance minister? Often eunuchs were. In the ancient world, the biggest reason is a world filled with graft and dishonesty. That's just how the world operated. And so what happened here is if you had a treasury, the trouble with having your treasurer is when people had kids, they had to place them all. They had, you know, they had, to get, they had to get them married off right, and that took a lot of money. So it's a tremendous incentive to steal. So they say eunuchs are perfect. They have no reason to steal. Isn't that tragic? There's nothing they could steal for. They don't have relatives to place. That's why you often see them as treasurers in the ancient world. Okay. Now, he's also, if that's not bad enough, the church jumps on him, so to speak. A eunuch could, he went all the way, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to go on a pilgrimage, and when he got there, he couldn't go beyond the parking lot, so to speak. He could only go to the outer court of the Gentiles. He's done everything right. He, he, pray, he prays to God. He's taken the pilgrimage. He wasn't good enough to go beyond the parking lot. And if you've ever seen the models of the temple, the court of the Gentiles is like a parking lot. It's way out there, a low barrier. Boy, that's nice. And he couldn't go to a synagogue. He would not be welcome to pray in a synagogue. And that, needless to say, there's a lot of popular mockery, you know, uh, because of their features being changed by the fact of this operation. Now, he's reading the book of Isaiah. So we're talking about how he's a symbol, really, of a dead-end life, as it seems in human terms. And, you know, he's reading chapter 53, which we love with the suffering servant. But I bet that's not his favorite chapter. You know, we love Isaiah. We read Isaiah in the church more than any other prophet. But I think there's a different reason he's reading Isaiah. Isaiah is the, the only place in the entire Bible that has good news to, to, for eunuchs, specifically for eunuchs. God actually reaches out to the one everybody else forgets. Everyone thinks it's a failed life, you know, a, a dry tree. You chop it down and put up something useful. What does it say in um, Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5? This is beautiful. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. Remember, they were excluded from the temple. I'm going to give you a monument in my temple, in my house. And he says more than that. He says, I'll give you a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. So what's the good news to the... He's the first individual to get the good news. And he would look at the person God cares about least. You know, from human terms, you say, God mustn't love me. Look at my life. My life could never be a success. It's a shadow of a life. The first person God goes to with all this trouble is a eunuch. Someone who's saying, in human terms, my life could never be anything. You're the one. And he would recognize right away, I think he's reading Isaiah because it's probably his favorite book. 
because this is the only, this is the promise of, of, uh, to eunuchs is there. And then, wait a second, if God has already fulfilled the promise with the suffering servant, that means the promise of the eunuch is fulfilled as well. God has, God has remembered me. God has remembered, has kept his promise. That's why he goes away rejoicing. In Jesus Christ, his life is no longer a dead end. Now, what, how is this good news for us today? Happily, uh, making people eunuchs is almost everywhere a thing of the past. However, there are a lot of us who might think that my life will never really lead anywhere in human terms. Maybe it's because it was really tragic when somebody else has made decisions I had nothing to say about. Something happened in my childhood, childhood trauma or neglect. Something happened, I was abused, let's say, as a teenager, someone might say. I was abandoned in my marriage. My spouse left me. There are things we can say, my life could never really go where I wanted it to go. It's really, it's never going to really amount. It'll be surviving, not living. And some people say, it's, I can't even blame other people. I did really stupid things, and now my life really doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I think it's all over. Okay. And the point, as a matter of fact, this is so common, the American writer, uh, Henry David Thoreau, and I think his most famous line, I love this line, he says, the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. Maybe the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. It means they go to work, they do those things, but they're saying, is this all there is? Does my life really have no meaning? Would it really be different if I hadn't been there? I think this personally from my experience, and I'm an old man talking to people go through midlife crisis, and sometimes hit people, they start looking and asking hard questions. What does this mean? So the question is we have here, the, um, okay, a quiet desperation is the good news of Jesus Christ is that no life has to be a dead end. There is no life that isn't going places. In Jesus Christ, everything changes. And I want to show you something. We look at the bulletin on the sermon page. I put in those icons. I, felt, I found that place. Um, I forgot the name of the, the site is. It's great. But it has, um, near, um, it has all these icons. So I'm really, every time I have a sermon, I'm using these icons. But it has a dead tree like the eunuch, and it has the tree of life. And what's between them? The cross. The cross changes the tree of hopelessness, the tree going nowhere, into a tree that's just filled with life, constantly tree, uh, leaves and fruit everywhere. Okay. That is what happens when we come, uh, come to the Lord Jesus. That's the good news. And it doesn't matter what mistakes we've made. It doesn't know where we are. Who's the one person we know for sure is in heaven? He's the first person to go there after the death of Christ. This is also Luke writing this. The thief on the cross. This man was a career criminal. Talking about a life that didn't make any difference. If it made a difference, it made a difference for the worse in human terms. Talking about uh, no time left, this guy was in his last breaths. And yet he's the first one. His life was a success story because he met Jesus. So he's saying every life has infinite hope. Every life goes somewhere. Now I want you to know, here's a real lesson for us. The Ethiopian eunuch circumstances did not change. Sometimes we think that success is like the book of Job. Remember, all these terrible things happen to Job. He loses his family, his possessions, his health. But at the end of the book, everything goes back again. Ah, I can see why he's happy. He got all the stuff back. He got even more. That doesn't happen to the eunuch. 
He's not cured. He's not going to get married and have a family. He goes back the same way he came in human terms. His circumstances have not changed, but everything has changed. That is to say, he will have a name now. His life will have a meaning because it'll, it, it will now have a name, as God says, it'll last forever. And every action has eternal power. Why does it have eternal power in all of our lives? Is remember, God is holy. And we say holiness of God is his quality. It's the one thing that's unique to God. And I like to say it's like a fire. God loves to compare himself to a fire. And what a fire has is that it produces heat and light. Heat and light, okay? And anything that comes close to the fire starts taking on, right? If you go near to a campfire, you get warm, right? You're going to know you have light. And so anything that approaches God or anything that belongs to God is called holy in the Old Testament. It takes on God's qualities. When we give our life to God, when we start, as Paul said, he said, offer your, soul, your souls and bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. If we offer our lives to God, when we're cleaning out the garage, if we offer that to God, suddenly it's holy. It has infinite worth. Anything done for God becomes holy and gives it infinite worth. That's why every life, no matter what our circumstances, has that possibility, you know, of, of being infinitely important. Anything given to God becomes infinite. So, the finishing up here is look at that, that, those icons again. So, we're saying, what's the difference between a dried-up tree and a dead tree? What makes all the difference? It's the sap, right? The sap is what keeps the tree, that's what keeps the, the, keeps the tree alive. That's what we receive in our baptism. That's the Holy Spirit. So this is not a personal project. In human terms, dead trees stay dead trees. But when God and His Holy Spirit comes to us, He's the one who brings the leaves and the fruit and the life. So the good news of that tree of life is the life is God's life in us. It's not something we create. It's a gift from God. We say simply let God's sap throw for us. Let His Spirit come in us and suddenly all the things we've been doing change. They become holy and beautiful. They give glory to God. So our bishop loves to say the way of the cross is the way of life. It's the, anyone taking that road, their life is going somewhere. They're going to have an eternal name. So I just say to you as we leave this morning, let's remember today to take up Jesus' invitation, to take up the cross and follow Him. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.